I mean, it permeates in a lot of issues, but when we, we look at things like healthcare, that's actually a lot of area where we can have bipartisan efforts on. Also, too, the problem's so big. Sometimes we can try it. Like you're talking about, well, who has the better idea? Sometimes you can try both ideas at once because the problem is is wide scale and see where you're going. I actually find that when we're in the world of healthcare, especially in Rhode Island, even in a lopsided legislature, there's 65 Dems and 10 Republicans. In reality, we actually do a lot of bipartisan legislation on this. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interests in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate. And if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Hello and welcome to Political Contessa. I am Jennifer Nassor and I am your Political Contessa. Today, I have a special guest with me. It is a woman who I find her career track super, super impressive and so different than so many other people I know in politics. So today I have with me Barbara Ann Fung. And Barbara is actually an elected official in the Rhode Island State House. Interestingly enough, though, she is a physical therapist also. So she actually, I know this sounds funny. She actually takes care of people and then she's a legislator, meaning that she actually probably cares about people and where they're going and how they are doing, right? Just by virtue of her real career. But I digress. So here's why I really think she's super cool, not just because she's a healthcare professional, but in the 2020 elections, Barbara ran for the, or I'm going to call her BA because she's a buddy. And so I'm calling her BA, ran for the District 15 seat for the Rhode Island House of Representatives against the Speaker of the State House. Now, for anyone who knows anything about Rhode Island politics, this is a very interesting defeat. Not only that, if you don't know about Rhode Island politics, <laughs> there's a couple of movies and a couple of characters that spend some time in jail that you should go and research because that will help you with Rhode Island politics. <laughs> and so Buddy Cianci and go listen to some true crime podcasts on that because he was an interesting Rhode Island character. So B.A. took out the Speaker of the State House by not just one point or five points. No, no, no. By 18 points in the general election and became the first Rhode Islander to defeat a sitting speaker in 114 years. And on top of that, she is also the first woman to ever represent her district. In the 2022 election, she was challenged in the Republican primary because why wouldn't we challenge amazing people who just won 
And we, of course, need to challenge them. So Republican challenger comes in. And you know what happened? B.A. was victorious over this woman with 92 percent of the vote. So I'm fascinated by her career because someone like this to me, who's young and vivacious and smart and energetic and courageous going off and taking out people like this. Boy, oh boy, I want to know how you got your start and where you're going. So B.A. Fung, welcome to Political Contessa. Jen, you're the best. Thanks so much for that introduction. I I should bring you along to every single political stop I have here. Uh, It's wonderful. It's so true, though, because in Rhode Island, we're such a Democratic state. And so all of us Republicans, like here in the Northeast, we're trying to fly the flag. And uh, we do it in a little bit of a different way than probably most Republicans from Oklahoma and Louisiana. Shout out to everybody out there. It's wonderful. Um, But we have to play a different game of chess up here. It just so happened that back in 2020, I, besides being in healthcare, was also married to the mayor of the city here in Cranston. Still am. Alan Fong, who has an amazing career himself and and made waves nationally by almost becoming the first um, Rhode Island Republican to take one of those federal seats in almost like 50 years. So, you know, we're, we're really trying to create our own brand here in the Northeast and New England Republicans. There's so few of us left here at the elected level that we you can't give up the ship. So in 2020, when I was Alan was just being termed out as mayor, it happens that the Speaker of the House represented our home district. So I actually defeated the Speaker in the home district, which is a little different. People don't always realize how that election went. And You know, 2020 was such a crazy year for the first time to jump into an elected race. I remember I put in my papers in on February 20th and about seven days later, COVID hit. Uh, (laughs) Sure. Holy cow. You're never prepared for what that became. All of a sudden we couldn't do in-person fundraisers. So fundraising was a lot of calls and very uncertain times that that was very difficult. Never mind going door to door. You know, most people. Remember, there was the hysteria about being six feet, 12 feet, 15 feet apart. So you'd walk up to the doors and sometimes I'd be doing conversations through glass barriers. Some people would open their second floor windows and we'd have like discussions, (laughs) shouting matches up and down. And it was such a weird time, not only just to be alive, but also to run your first political campaign. I think the uniqueness of that year helped because... The people in, in our district were like, wow, if if they're, if you feel it's this important to do all this in these kind of circumstances, people trusted us as a family anyway, because my husband was just such a rock star in the city. And I think um, some of the speakers kind of self-inflicted wounds, like you, I think, alluded to before, Rhode Island politics, we have our share of elected officials who end up not only in state, but federal <laughs> prison. We were looking back and... He might have been one of the only speakers in recent years to not go through the judicial system only because we took him out first through the electoral. So um, it's so hard. We've talked about this offline, too, Jen. But like when you're a woman, sometimes it's a little bit of an extra hill you got to climb, um, and especially when you're going to be the first at something. But I think we're really good at telling stories and getting our not just our vision, but how you're going to do things. We're so used to just solving family problems. Most women are just doers. Those skills kind of cross over to politics. People really like when politicians get things done. 
And it's always, it's always nice when you not just promise things, but check off the boxes. And uh, I think we've been really successful these last few years. So that was, that was an interesting time to jump into my first race, but I I was really happy I did. And and it it turned out pretty good. Yeah. That was a crazy time to try to campaign. I mean, you know, Joe Biden didn't really have to do anything, right? He just campaigned from his basement. You actually hit the streets and tried to have conversations with people, slightly different types of campaigning. I wish I could do it from my basement. Uh, it, it was fun, though. It would. I remember some people whose houses I'd visit. I might have been the only human they had seen in three or four weeks, especially the seniors. Vaccines weren't out yet. Um, they really couldn't leave their their homes very easily at all. Their groceries would get delivered. I, for many of us, remember sometimes the groceries, the delivery people would put it, you know, three feet outside the door and not get close. And it's an amazing testament to what we came through and, and lessons we certainly can learn. Hopefully, if we're faced with the same situation in the future, we'll do things a little bit differently and learn from our mistakes. But yeah, that was um, it was always impressive to see how resilient some of our families were in the neighborhood, too. It was definitely a time that I remember going through the motions myself. It was just really me and my husband. Like I had alluded to, he was the mayor of the city. And that does help a little bit, especially in a pandemic when you're knocking on doors and they see the mayor and they're like, oh, Alan, you're here. And that was a nice way to get the door open. But um, it is definitely, I give people a lot of credit who jump into the arena no matter what. But anybody who survived the 2020 election <laughs> gets a gold star. It was it was a different time to be alive. Absolutely. I mean, I can't even imagine. I campaigned in 2019, so I was right before. And then I had a friend who was running for Congress in 2020 and just watching, you know, and it's like shifting and going from real life. I mean, I was able to have real life fundraisers. And when she was running, it was like, let's have a virtual fundraiser. I'm like, how the hell does that work out? Right. (laughs) Well, we laugh. I mean, nobody, very few people had heard of Zoom before that. And all of a sudden we became, this is how we were doing family reunions. I mean, some people even had funerals, unfortunately, over Zoom. We all became a little more flexible. And I think, you know, that that's one of the great things that we learned uh, throughout COVID is that everybody came out of their comfort zones a little bit to make things like that work. But yeah, fundraising There's a lot of phone calls and a lot of people were stressed out. That's a hard time to ask somebody for money if they don't know if they have to close their small business, if they have a job. (laughs) You know, it it was a difficult time. But you did. You came out of your comfort zone to run for office at that time. And you could have said, forget it. You know, clearly this isn't the best time to run. But you you went and you did it, which I think is really courageous to, to start something at such a scary time. When you would go around with Alan when he was, and by the way, for you out there, just so you know, Alan Fung has been a guest on Political Contessa before when he was running for Congress, because I'm also a fan of his. So when Alan was mayor and running for office and now campaigning, did you go with him? Did you ever think to yourself, God, I would love to do this? Or were you like, oh, God, this sucks? <laughs> no, <laughs> Why would anyone oh do this? <laughs> I love that. You know what? I think most political spouses make it work. I think it's it's exciting, especially somebody like Alan, who is just so beloved because of the type of person he is. He's he's not your typical politician. And that's why he's he's made amazing tracks in his political career. I thought that maybe one day I would do this, but like you alluded to before, I'm a physical therapist. So I I really don't know how to fix your shoulder all that well, which is a funny thing to say, but I actually work inpatient at our local trauma hospital. 
So if you have a massive stroke, if you have a spinal cord injury or what I see on TV, oh, there was a bad car accident. Usually those people are my patients the next day. And so if you're on a ventilator, we're getting you up, walking you around. If you're all of a sudden you're paralyzed on one side again, we're, we're getting you out of bed within just a few hours of your stroke. So it's a different type of thing. Now, working at the trauma hospital, I'm also incredibly lucky that I have a different perspective because being a Republican, we always get kind of put in a box that we don't always see the benefit of social programs or that we're cruel, that the Democrats are just so much more generous and can take care of you. But when you're at Rhode Island Hospital, where I work, you see all the socioeconomic problems literally at our front door. Okay. So it doesn't matter how rich you are. Guess what? Alzheimer's is going to come up. and It doesn't matter how much money you made in life. You still might get Alzheimer's. It really doesn't matter how many great things you did yesterday. We, we see some of our patients who are just like living saints and they're the people who get hit by the drunk drivers. And then we get people who are homeless and have, have really made some mistakes in life with substance abuse and other perhaps criminal activities. And you still have to treat them like they're your grandparents. And so you they're, come, they're in front of you. You solve the problem that's at your door. And uh, a lot of times that means getting really well-versed in the social structures and social benefits that are out there. And so I, I tend to have a little bit more of an investment mindset, especially up here where we live. I mean, all politics is local. So I definitely have more moderate views on the spectrum of the Republican Party, which is quite large, because I, I see sometimes you just can't be black and white on certain things. And I know that if I invest some money to get this person into an inpatient substance abuse bed, that we're going to get him to a better spot in life, hopefully get him a job, hopefully get, you know, lower healthcare costs and because we're actually going to solve problems and bringing that perspective sometimes into the party. We see it with the younger generation nationally, but I think, you know, over the past decade or two, there was definitely some old school way of thinking and that, well, that's their fault. Well, <laughs> there's still the person who ends up on our front door. And uh, I think we need to remember that could be us just very simply some days. And so I, I definitely bring more of a, a willingness to, to look and see what other benefits are really not just cost effective, but what are actually changing people's lives. And that's important to remember. That's a good reason to run for office, right? Is, is what impact can you have on someone who I worked in, I worked in government forever. And so before, while I was in grad school and law school, and I worked in my county legislature, I worked in the governor's office. And I just remember when people would call and they were so distraught and, you know, it's something, I mean, it sounds silly, but like my cat is in the tree, has been in the tree for three days. I can't get my cat out. I don't know how to get my cat out. Can you help me? Right? Like, my neighbor left the house and I know she has a child and I never saw the child get into the car. You know, I'm not trying to be a nosy neighbor, but like, I think that there's a situation, right? And it's like, you are able to actually help people in a way that they don't know. They don't know who can help them. But when you're in that position and you're in elected office, it's you, it's your staff that can go and answer those questions. I mean, when I was campaigning, for city council, I had moms, single moms in the in public housing who would say to me, you as a mom can understand this. Like my kid goes to school and there are rats running under her feet. And my son tells me about the toilets in the bathroom that are so low to the ground 
because they were really there for preschool and not for their school. The quality of education and not knowing how to get their families out of that situation. And, you know, people find themselves on hard times. And, you know, it's nice. I mean, the part of being a Republican I always liked was, you know, it's not about a hand out. It's about a hand up. How can we show these people and put them on a different path? And maybe it's your it's your perspective as a woman. It's your perspective as being someone in healthcare. But, you know, how can we see this in a different way? Because it is an investment in all of society, right? It makes it better for everyone. And listen, if we could figure out how to keep people off of drugs, maybe healthcare costs come down, right? If we could figure out, you know, how to get cancer quicker or how to, you know, stop Alzheimer's from coming on, everything kind of comes down. It's a, it's a mutual beneficial parade that we can walk through (laughs) together, right? (laughs) Well, absolutely. If people are healthier, not only are they living better lives, but they're costing the system less. And let's face it, one of the things I think both parties can really agree is that our healthcare system is broken in 10 different ways. So yes, drug prices are very, very high. We don't have enough inpatient mental health beds. You know, like we're talking about cancer. One treatment can cost $82,000. And if you're not adequately insured, your financial house of cards is just ruined for the rest of your life. So we're, we're looking at how do we learn? There are some countries that do this really well. Israel actually has a phenomenal public health system. And that's why they actually did very well during COVID because they realized that health just isn't about a pill. It's not giving you a shot of insulin and it's not keeping you alive forever with endless blood pressure and cardiac meds. They looked at people's housing situations. Like you're talking about this condition of their schools. They understood how important the environment was. And because they had made about a decade's worth of investments in public health, they came through COVID in much better ways than most other industrialized countries. So you're looking at, all right, well, that's certain things that maybe Republicans have incorporated, but not always been so vocal about. Look, we all love clean air. We all love clean water. But when you're thinking about your grandmother who might be living in public housing or subsidized housing, assisted living, if they don't have a place to walk outside that's probably covered by trees and nice and shape, they're not going to be out moving around. And and then their health suffers. They end up more times in the hospital. So when we're kind of looking at how if you're trying to lower healthcare costs, take a look at how healthy a society is and what other social determinants we can really tackle. And I think that's appealing to members of both parties and all the independents who are up here in between. Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I here in Boston, we have, well, you know, like many other big cities around the country, right? We have a really bad crisis going on. It's not just migrants. We We have an issue with drugs and homelessness. And it's getting to the point where the mayor of Boston moved people from one area in front of the public hospital to a different area. But then someone just told me that they put a whole bunch of these people on a school bus and brought them to downtown Boston and just let them off. And now the uptick in crime in Beacon Hill has you know gone up tenfold in the past couple of weeks and people have still been away on vacation and now they're going to come home and find homeless drug addicts at their doorstep okay so now we have right drugs we have homelessness on the table but you know what we also have now is the crime and the crime sprees on these businesses so how many times does a business 
get broken into until their insurance company tells them, we're going to drop you. And then you lose your inventory, you can't fix your store, and now you lose your livelihood. And it's just, it is a vicious spiral, I think, that happens that if all politicians, regardless of their political stripes, don't start figuring out, it is not nice to leave people on the streets and give them extra heroin needles so that way they could sick themselves and have better access to clean needles, but that we actually have to fix this issue. I don't know how it ever stops. I don't know how bringing migrants into a place and saying that we're a sanctuary city, oh, we're going to protect you. Oh, we don't have enough space for you. So what we should do is we should ask families, that taxpaying families, to open up their doors and bring in migrant families. Although we were just talking about this whole COVID crisis, right, that had happened and our kids couldn't go to school and everyone needed vaccines and the whole thing. But now we have migrants who are coming into our big cities. We're supposed to take them in without any health checks, without knowing that they're bringing in from lice and bed bugs to COVID or other diseases, not knowing background checks if, you know, dad or mom is a sex predator and, you know, what so it is. It is so amazing to me that these issues become political issues because they're not. They're humanitarian issues. They're issues that affect all of us from, again, public health and safety to the economy and, and you know, just all around making lifting people up and putting them on a better path rather than pushing people down. Because I don't understand what's going on these days. It's terrible. Well, you're right, because in it, Rhode Island, we don't have the same situation as um, you do in Boston, and especially New York, two cities right now who are just, again, have always been, we're going to be a sanctuary city in this theory. But when it comes to practice, we really nobody's ready for that. They, uh, there's obviously so many problems already for the people who have lived there forever. And now we're, we're adding a demand to that, that none of these cities can meet at the moment. Um, and it really comes down to you're like, where do you start when we're talking about the the drug crisis? You can't have an open border. And it, it's I mean, this is the local impact of something that feels thousands of miles away. You have fentanyl that comes across the border. It ends going right up 95 and it comes right up here to New England. And we know that all that we, we see it actually going straight through our, our troopers are actually catching people left and right. But when there are more drugs on the street, we're kind of going back into what happened in the 80s. You take, remember, like Hunts Point in the Bronx, and you have to actually change the structure. You need to have a border that there's a door. You you go through the door. You don't sneak in the back windows. And we stop having this flow of just uninterrupted fentanyl and other drugs that are crossing the border. Because now you look at Philadelphia, um, and they're going through a trank crisis as well. And these are people who are brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and they get caught up in this so not only have we enabled a situation to occur but we have no way of treating it because there's not enough mental health beds you if you have somebody who's hooked on any kind of hard substance like what you're talking about in boston it's mass and cast is the famous village that they tried to move there and if you don't give these people a home and medical personnel who were there to help them with either drugs. Sometimes we can give drugs that help you wean off of your substance abuse issues. If we're not actually providing that, if we're not providing you a shower, if we're not providing you food and water, 
I know it sounds like we're providing, 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 but that's how you actually solve a problem and not let it fester for years, oftentimes not with a good outcome. So you have to figure out what do you want to, what do you want your outcome to be? Usually that outcome is more cost effective, having a safer, healthier, happier person who is off these substances like cocaine. Cocaine's a big issue here in Rhode Island, the heroin and now the fentanyl. So, but you're seeing in Boston and New York and Philadelphia, the, the local impacts of really, really awful national policy. Do you think that I want to say on this because, you know, it's politics as, as you and I know, being in new England, it's so divisive, right? And it's not only divisive across party lines, but it's divisive in our own parties. But again, an issue like this, it feels as though there shouldn't be an it shouldn't be an issue, right? It it feels like it should be a great unifier of who has the best idea as far as how we stop this, how we stop our kids. I mean, my I just sent my oldest daughter back to school and you know, my conversation with her is is still the same only i just bark it now i don't i don't say you know what's going to happen because she knows she knows what's going to happen right i mean but you know i start out with no drugs no drugs no drugs like just no drugs because it's a slippery slope don't get go down that slope because you don't know when you get caught up and something else happens and just no drugs and it's scary because you hear of kids, you know, we heard on the on the national stage for the debate, for the GOP debate, you know, how a kid took a what a Percocet and then it was laced with fentanyl and and then dies. God help us. Right. I mean, so many of our kids think, oh, I have anxiety or I have ADHD. And then some other friend says, here, look what I got. I mean, I had to have a whole conversation over the summer of do not get anything off the black market. Don't take anything from anyone else. If you need anything, call your own doctor, right? Like, but, but I mean, I'm having those conversations with my kid. Not everyone is. And sometimes it's too late. But do we have any shot of there being some way to stop this from being Republicans just want to keep everyone out of the country and they're just being mean about this and Democrats saying, no, 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 come over with your drugs and your disease and, you know, your criminal, you know, sex offender record. We want everything. What's going to happen here going forward? Yeah, you're talking about the divisiveness. I mean, it permeates in a lot of issues, but when we, we look at things like healthcare. That's actually a lot of area where we can have bipartisan efforts on. Also, too, the problem's so big. Sometimes we can try it. Like you're talking about, well, who has the better idea? Sometimes you can try both ideas at once because the problem is is wide scale and see where you're going. I actually find that when we're in the world of healthcare, especially in Rhode Island, even in a lopsided legislature, there's 65 Dems and 10 Republicans. In reality, we actually do a lot of bipartisan legislation on this. We both find answers together. And a lot of our Dems really like it when the Republicans get on board because it's like, all right, this has to be a good idea if we're all going forward. And and they take a little bit of ours and add in if we can add your footprint. I was, it was like my second day after being elected and I was told by a, a senior member of our caucus, he's like, our job in these states is to make really crappy bills just a little bit better. And, and over time, <laughs> I was trying to, trying to understand what he was saying. Like, we have to put our footprint and guide people. But when you're talking about big major national issues like the border, 
how do you make it not an issue? You need eight or 10 senators like, you know, had had happened in before instead of them getting crushed, who actually work together and say, hey, look, here's a pathway that we can move forward. I don't know if that happens in the Trump era. However you feel about President Trump, it doesn't matter one way or the other. Sometimes instead of sometimes I think that the the absolute partisanship and and just going into our corners and we're not even going to talk. Sometimes there's just one issue that you can't get over. And for different reasons, it's just it's a blockade. I wonder once that blockade is not there, if there's not going to be some room for people to come across, because I think a lot of times there will be a distraction. And uh, President Trump was great at this sometimes when things weren't going well on, on one issue would pivot really quickly and all of a sudden introduce another shiny ball over here and everybody got distracted and moved. We have the 24 hour cable news networks. And a lot of times, you know, outside of one or two that really focus on say the border issue, they're distracting with other issues that come up that really aren't impacting your day-to-day life for 99.9% of the country. I think that as you have more democratic voices and it's really these big city mayors like Eric Adams in New York, Um, I haven't heard Michelle Wu be very critical yet, but I think there's a breaking point for every city. Like, this isn't working. We can't be a sanctuary city anymore. Then they can kind of understand what Texas and Arizona have been complaining about for the past two or three years. There's a demand and a capacity issue that we, as generous of a nation as we are, cannot handle, cannot handle safely. And um, I think it takes people in these democratic areas to say, I, I don't want this. And they've got to go to their politicians so that the next election, like, unless you fix something, like, you're not getting my vote. I think New York City is close to that. Um, when you see the people in Manhattan, they do those roadside interviews. And I, I have family who live in the city and they're just like, whoa, whoa, we can't do this anymore. And once it, once it's on your front step, it's a lot different than it is when it's some hypothetical thing on the Texas border. Um, but I think... I hate saying that a crisis like this might help turn the tide, but it might when people have to deal with it. Like you said, like when it's at the hospital, it's at your front door. When it runs up to you, you have to face that situation and not just punt it down the field. Yeah, I think I think that that's I think that's right. And, you know, it would be unfortunate. I mean, it would be unfortunate for the tide to change because it got so bad. I mean, like I'm saying about Beacon Hill, you know, for you out there, Beacon Hill is a beautiful little historic neighborhood in, in the city of Boston. And it kind of like cheers the the show cheers the outside lots of, of it. Is, lots of yeah. yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's definitely the place where you walk into a store and everyone knows your name and, you know, nice little restaurants, nice little shops and pretty townhouses. And for them to be seeing the uptick in crime and drugs and homelessness. And it's very much like the Elizabeth Warren. Oh, John Kerry lives there. Right. So it's the oh, not in my backyard, but, you know, we can push them over there. And now it's actually on their front doorstep. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they can motivate the mayor to take care of this situation or change her tune. You know, so it's it's unfortunate that it has to get to that point and that our politicians are just so delusional that it's not going to happen in our backyard and it's not going to affect everyone overall um, if they don't get hold of it. 
So, I mean, I think that that's a really big, good issue for Republicans, especially in big cities, especially in blue states. I think, you know, one of the things I I talk to women about all the time is, you know, the women like us, but, you know, not involved in politics and don't really want to bring up their political persuasions. But I always try to say to them, you know, find that topic, find that issue. Hey, I heard that, you know, the mayor of Boston threw people, homeless drug addicts on a school bus and shipped them to another part of the city. That is a fact. And that is a conversation starter. Right. And so you can talk about politics in a non-divisive bomb throwing way. We don't have to talk about abortion. We don't have to talk about, I don't know, do you like Trump? Do you like Biden? How dumb Kamala Harris is, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Actually, all three of them up there are not my favorites. But I mean, there's ways to talk about it. And and this is one of those conversations that I hope my podcast listener is saying, hey, that's actually really good point because that, you know, they're they're talking about because it's really important. And elections make a difference, right? Voting makes a difference. And who you vote for changes the impact on your life ultimately, because you hope that they are paying attention to all the issues and not just the things that propel them to run for office. Well, it's true, too. I think and and nobody realizes how important the city council is to your life. They're like, oh, that's that's starter level. Literally, your city councilors and your school committee members might have the most impact on your day to day life. So that's there's ever one race to ever look at and really want to know the candidates. I would always recommend that those are the people you look at first. Governors are important. Senators, they, they're not going to usually drastically change your life in any way. They will help form policies at the national level that will help to make more economic opportunities. But if you're talking about what is my kid learning in school and are you really concerned about the curriculum? Do you just want to know what's going on? As I go door to door, I have more grandparents who are just they don't know what their grandkids are learning. And it's very different from what they learned, obviously, 50 years ago, perhaps. And sometimes our schools aren't as transparent as they need to be. They don't even have the curriculum online. So when it's not transparent, then people assume the worst. And then we, we see things like have happened in Fairfax County in Virginia, where parents have just been driving the steam to get these schools to be much more transparent and perhaps more inclusive of all viewpoints instead of just a couple that were popular at the time on the school committee. And uh, they've made a huge difference. They they happen to always be on national TV because their efforts have required a, a very large lift in that community. But even wherever you are, whether you're in California, whether you're in Maryland, knowing what's going on in the schools and helping to f- kind of shape that, that really is going to make a difference in your nieces and nephews and children and grandchildren's lives. And um, you don't have to be a politician to do that. You can show up at your local school committee meetings. They're not very intimidating at all. You're probably going to know 90% of the people in that room. And it's great to ask questions and you can really make a mark. And some days that sparks a desire to maybe run one day for one of those seats. And then um, people say, oh, I don't like politics, but politics is in every single thing we do in life. You're not maybe an elected politician, but when you're influencing people, you're basically practicing politics and getting our government structure, our school structure to a better place for your community. Wherever you live, 
is probably going to be different than in Rhode Island <laughs> or Massachusetts. <laughs> and, and that's okay. And I just wish the best for your community that you and your neighbors get to live in peace in an area that you want to and shape that life for your families. So I, I think there's a lot of women out there who probably stay out of the political realm. Like I said, when working at the hospital, the nurses I work with are probably the most apolitical people. They just, they don't have the bandwidth to handle a lot of the drama that can go on at the state house. But now that I'm up there, they absolutely love it. And they're always like talking, what's this, what's that? And, you know, I'm like, come on guys, like come with me up here, you know, like run for your state rep seat, run for town council. And uh, we're going to have to do it next year. So I think it's great. It's wonderful. I'm so excited for them. And, uh, be a busy year, but we're going to have a great time because just throwing your hat in the ring, a lot of women are successful in ways that they didn't even realize because they're, they're so good at multitasking and, and telling stories and having more women in the field, their success begets other success. So I think it's wonderful. absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you know, someone like you, it's just motivating to see you and say, wow, she did it. You know, that's really interesting. And I don't have to go to law school and I don't have to have four degrees in political science or be, you know, have a PhD and, in, in, you know, something in public administration. So I think it's really motivating. And what you said, I mean, that's what I try to tell women all the time is go to a school committee meeting, get involved. If your kids are in private school, get involved, find out, ask the questions. And we are great storytellers and women win at the same rate as men, but women need to be asked seven times in order to run for office. And it would be great for women to feel more comfortable talking about the natural things. And and I always say the same thing. There is politics. You put gas in your car, that has to do with politics. You put food on your table, that has to do with politics. You have to pick up a sticker for your trash barrel because your town requires that. That has to do with politics. And most elected officials get paid by taxpayer dollars. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it's so different. Everybody's like, oh, are you getting into it for money? I was like, this no. is we are part time legislature. And while I'm, I'm very grateful to have any kind of stipend, this is nobody is getting rich off of local government <laughs> ever, ever. We do it because we love it. We do it because we can see a great impact. We're talking about it. The fact that we've limited here in Rhode Island, the co-pays on insulin and other specialty drugs like to $30. And I know that that makes, you know, the three seniors I have who live behind me, their lives a little bit easier and, and their discretionary income a little bit easier that month. You can make more of an impact on that local stage. And uh, I think it's I think it's fun to do. Yes, people will criticize you. Yes, you will have irrational people on social media call you horrible things. They have never met you. In fact, if they bumped in, into you in the store, they wouldn't even know it was you. I've actually had someone trash me to me because they didn't realize who I was. <laughs> I was like, have you ever met her? And they're like, oh, no, no, I, I would never meet her. Like, I was like, you just did. And like, I just, I loved seeing their face turn white. And they're, sometimes us as politicians, we're going to get hit for things that people think we did, even if we never did it. The game of telephone can always twist what you're actually saying or doing. And so I think it's just important to be really upfront and just expect it. But notice that like, or know that about 95% of the interactions you're going to have in public are going to be awesome. And you're going to meet new friends from all different walks of life. And you're going to learn so much too. Up at the state house, I sit on five committees and there are just certain things I never even thought I would care about as a freshman. We had 
state fossils and different lines of insurance and the state algae, I mean, different types of algae, oyster farms, aquaculture, all these things that as a healthcare worker, I, I had almost no knowledge of. And all of a sudden now, not only is it just wild and interesting, but you actually develop other life interests and it's a lot of fun and you meet some great people along the way. It's definitely an avenue to go into and just realize that you're not going to be able to control what other people say about you. And usually it's just because they're maybe slightly envious of of the opportunities you have and uh, they could have it too. So all they got to do is pick up a, a paper and run when the death. Exactly. Yeah. I ignore all, all social media BS that happens because <laughs> anytime I say something, I commented on bike lanes in in Boston and it was like, you know, all the bots and the trolls came out and, you know, I'm like, it's not even, I would love to get out there and like retweet back at them. I'm like, you know what? It's not even worth an ounce of my breath and time to even think about these people. But it's funny because, you know, it's like, oh, wait, someone just commented and then you look and you're like, what? <laughs> Forget it. I'm never looking at it. We could probably both have books that are like the comments or the tweets I never sent. They're yes. probably the bestseller. And it's just like, <laughs> you got to realize it. And you also, I mean, the only thing that really bothers me about politics is definitely a downside of it is the effect it has on our families. When my husband was running for major office, they would just say horrible things about him that of course had no basis in fact, but they're going to say it anyway. Like my mom had to go on blood pressure medication because she was just so irritated by it. There's always a price that our families pay and having real honest conversations ahead of time and and knowing what their limits are and how involved they want to be or not and, and kind of helping them set expectations. The world has gotten a little bit crueler lately at least on in the internet and the online world where a lot of people are looking and I, sometimes I'm just like, Hey mom, like don't go on Twitter. I, you know, just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Nothing happens there. So now um, in our last couple of minutes before we wrap up, where do you see your future going? I know. Well, it's always fun. I'm a big believer in term limits. I know that we don't see those up at the federal level as many, many of our senators are in their ninth decade, but even at local levels, I just think that, It's wonderful to serve in certain offices. And I think that sometimes there'll be other opportunities that won't be in that same office that you've run for the past few terms. And I I think it's cool to maybe take a look at those. Certainly my husband was mayor and that kind of chief executive role is really, really an awesome one. You can make a lot of difference there. Certainly looking at that seat in the future, whether that future is in the near future or a couple of years, we'll we'll learn soon. But uh, I think that, Taking your skills that you learn in one office and applying them to the next level or, or perhaps even a lateral move if you're in the House, go to the Senate. But I think that keeps you fresh and young. I think that helps to move ideas around in different chambers. There are some people in our house, in our state house, that have actually been there longer than I've been alive. And I'm 42. So I don't always, I, I stop and think like, what exactly are you doing here that you, you weren't able to accomplish 30 years ago? You know, what, what's your reason for being here? And so if it's just that you're just still there because you like, maybe switch it up a little bit, maybe go to the Senate instead of the house, or maybe um, look at a statewide seat because then you can bring your ideas to a different level. Maybe they'll be more effective at a different level. And I think that's definitely what I'm looking to do in the near future. I just, I don't want to get stale. And I think sometimes it's, it's easy to get stale in our government procedures, but uh I like that executive role a lot. So we're, we're going to look over the next year or two avenues that I think I can use my skills a little better at. So we'll, we'll wait and find out. 
Well, I love it. And I can't wait to hear announcements in the future from you about where your career is going to go. I totally agree. I'm a big term limit person. And I think if your state doesn't have them, then you should impose them on yourself and don't be scared, you know, go run for something else, go see what else is out there and how you could make an impact in a different way. And I think it's really awesome. So, but I know, I know you're going to do great things and I look forward to following your career and having you back on Political Contessa with me. Jen, you're the best. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. Just not for the opportunity to talk, but everything I get to learn from you too in all your episodes. So that's wonderful. And, and everybody out there, you know, if you ever need help or ever want to have questions about diving in, always happy to to encourage other women and kind of help you feel through the process. It's so important that we have more of our voices heard. So thanks so much. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being here with me today in Political Contessa. That is B.A. Fenton Fung. She is a state representative from the great state of Rhode Island. If you haven't been to Rhode (laughs) Island, you should go check out Rhode Island. It is the prettiest, tiniest state, I think, in the United States. I am a little bit biased, though. B.A. is a rock star, and hopefully you enjoy this episode and listening to her. And you will go out also and take the plunge and run for something local or encourage a friend or just go and have your voice heard because can't be silent. You're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. And by sitting back, you end up being just part of the woodwork and you're not going to change anything. So hopefully you listen to what B.A. had to say and you enjoyed it. And that is going to be a little kick to you to go out and run for office or do something amazing as well. So thank you for being here with me on Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, your Political Contessa. Stay happy, healthy, and safe. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. 